Hello, Kobo and Conversation listeners. It's producer Nathan here to introduce this episode from our friends at the Kobo Writing Life podcast, which is a great resource for anybody looking to take their writing career to the next level. We wanted to bring you this conversation that they had with romance novelist Jackie Lau, talking about how she works as a writer and about her brand new book, Not Your Valentine. So here's Rachel and Laura speaking with Jackie Lau on the Cobra Writing Life podcast. Hello, we are joined today by author Jackie Lau. Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us today. Thank you for having me here. Now, this is not your first time on the KWL podcast, but for listeners who missed your previous episode, could you start us off by telling us a bit about yourself? Um, so I'm a romance author. Um, I've now written over 20 books uh, starting in 2018. Um, they're sort of romantic comedy, uh, all with at least one or more uh, Asian main characters. Uh, most of them are set in Toronto, a few of them elsewhere in Ontario. And a lot of them are indie romances, but I also have a couple books with Berkeley and now also a couple books with Kobo Originals. Now on your bio, on your website, it says mm-hmm. that you knew you wanted to be a writer when you were in grade two, but yes. then you went on to work as a geophysicist before becoming yes. a romance writer. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you kind of take us on the journey towards your first romance book? Um, so I, I studied engineering and geophysics in university. Um, and then I got, I got a job in that field after I graduated. Um, but writing was always something I wanted to do, just not something that I wanted to plan as a career, you know, right out of the gate, because that doesn't always work out. So I started writing my first novel, I think, when I was 24, more than 10 years ago. Um, and that was meant to be more like chiclet back in the day uh, when that was a more common term. Um, and then I realized it was basically a romance. So I started reading romance after I started writing, actually. And then I drunk that novel because it was terrible. And I read romance uh, almost exclusively for a year before I deliberately started writing my first one. So romance was not the genre that you always had in mind. It's just kind of how what you fell into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And so you wrote that first book and then you, like you said, you scrapped it. And then was your next book, the first book you published? So I had, um, so this is my second pen name. I won't say what the first one was, but I had a bunch of books with small presses. Um, so I did publish. So I trunked the first book. I can't actually remember. I think I started a second like women's fiction chiclet book. And then I, uh, started a romance novella and I did sell that one and it was published by a small press. I think it was um, early 2014. Um, And I had, I think a dozen novelettes to short novels under that pen name. And I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process. Would you say Mm -hmm. you're a plotter or a pantser? So I'm definitely a plotter. Um, I am also very, think very chronologically. So I plot um, the whole book out ahead of time, just sort of uh, like a couple lines of of point form notes per chapter, um, sort of following Gwen Hayes' Romancing the Beats, Romancing the Beat, um, which is very useful for romances. Um, So I, I always plot ahead of time. I don't think, I think I would be like paralyzed with not knowing what direction I was going in if I didn't outline it first. That makes sense for sure. And do you have any favorite tropes as, let's say, as a writer and as a reader? Because you mentioned you read a lot of romance too. 
Yeah. So I really like fake dating, um, which is what is not your Valentine is. Um, and what else do I like? I like grumpy sunshine and, uh, yeah, I guess those are two of the big ones I like and forced proximity of some sort as well. You mentioned that uh, you wrote Chicklet and then kind of went into romance after reading a lot of romance. Was there a specific romance author that made you think, ah, this is my genre or any specific title? Um, so when I first started like the Chicklet, it was sort of Bridget Jones's diary that made me want to write Um at that specific time, I was like, oh, I'll write something like this, which is, it's it's chiclet, but like there is some romance in it. Um, and then when I started reading romance, I really liked uh, Kristen Higgins, um, Julie James. Uh, those are two of the big contemporary ones. Out of the two of us, I must admit, Laura is the romance reader. So she's the one like <laughs> nodding along and I'm like, yeah. yes. <laughs> Yeah, totally nodding along and agreeing with some of the tropes you mentioned. Forced proximity is a really good yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, Not Your Valentine, which is your upcoming Kobo Originals release. Could you give our listeners a little spoiler-free synopsis? Um, so Not Your Valentine is about Helen Sang. And a year ago, she had a viral video, a video go viral of her being dumped at a restaurant on Valentine's Day where her ex says, it's not me, it's you. And after that, she just sort of swore off dating. And now Valentine's Day is coming up again. And she's perfectly happy not dating, but her family and friends are sort of getting on her case and worried that she's not over it. So she decides to ask one of her friends to be her fake boyfriend, just so everyone will stop worrying about her. Now, what was the first like spark of an idea for this book? Was it the viral video? Was it the fake dating? so curious I actually can't um yeah I can't remember I think it was the fake dating um but I've written a bunch of fake dating books so I'm not yeah I'm not sure actually a viral breakup video is like everyone's 2023 nightmare (laughs) can I just say yeah yeah the idea that there's like cameras everyone has a camera now and that could totally happen to anyone nowadays and that's the my worst nightmare yeah 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 for sure I guess I should be grateful to any and all exes for breaking up with me in the privacy of my own home then huh I mean and also like for me like so long ago that this wasn't often really Now, we touched a little bit on tropes, and uh, like you mentioned, Not Your Valentine has the fake dating trope in it, but there's also a grumpy sunshine element to it as well, except like unlike the, and I'm using air quote, like heavy air quotes here, traditional grumpy sunshine, mm-hmm. uh, it's the heroine who's like the Valentine's Day hating, anti-heart-shaped everything character. Was it really fun to write Helen? Yeah, it was it was quite fun. Um, I have written a few other books as well with a more grumpy heroine, and I always enjoy doing that. Yeah, I did see. Oh, I forget where I read it, but somebody was exclaiming how great your grumpy female characters are. Oh. <laughs> Is there any um, in like outside influence to these characters? Um, are they inspired by you? Um, a little bit, but I don't know if I would really call myself grumpy exactly um <laughs> sorry to mean yeah. to put you on the spot with that one yeah 
Um, so you've said that Taylor loves cinnamon hearts and Helen prefers our charcuterie chalet. Um, which do you prefer? And what was the inspiration behind the charcuterie chalet? Because I could totally go for one of those. Um, Have you ever made one? No, I haven't. I think I forget when I first heard of them. I think it was like maybe 2020. Um, and I was like, oh, I should put that in a book. Um, <laughs> and um yeah, so I did. And so, yeah, I would prefer charcuterie chalet over cinnamon hearts. Um, but if it was a gingerbread house, I think that would be a tougher decision because gingerbread is kind of appealing. So gingerbread is delicious. And I like I genuinely want to try to make a charcuterie chalet. <laughs> I have zero artistic skills, but I love to eat. So I feel like that would motivate me to attempt one. So you haven't I mean, tried to build one no, yet? No, no. But you don't actually have to bake, right? You just have to get the ingredients and assemble it. So, yeah. But it's the assembling I'm a little yeah. worried about. <laughs> My gingerbread <laughs> houses tend to look like do you remember the original Sims, like Sim City video game, and you could summon disasters? That's what my gingerbread house. Oh. Like. <laughs> we should have done some kind of like charcuterie chalet building contest as part of like our promotion. <laughs> the book. I'm gonna float that by Jess for our promotions. I do wonder if it's something that's like people only do if they're gonna put it on social media. Like, does anyone actually do it if it's not like something that they're going to post? I mean, I don't think I could build something that spectacular and not try to share it with the world. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you were hiding it from someone because it deflated before. <laughs> kind of speaking about social media, uh, social media presence is such a big part of Helen's fake mm -hmm. relationship. Um, how do you approach social media in your marketing? Um, so I'm mainly on, um, so I don't use TikTok at present. I want to, but it's something that like, doesn't really come naturally to me. I know some people have had great success with TikTok, but it's a bit hit and miss. Um, I mainly use Twitter, which I've been on for quite a while and, um, Instagram as well. Um, and like on Instagram, I find that book content always does better, gets more likes than other stuff. So I don't, I do post other things on Instagram as well, but it's quite heavily on the books I have, especially if I have a release coming up. I mean, I post like donut pictures and food too, but um, I don't uh, focus so much on posting my regular life. Um, Twitter is just sort of whatever at this point, like, uh, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen to Twitter um, I know some people said say Twitter doesn't sell books uh, Twitter has absolutely sold books for me mainly at the beginning when I was starting out as an indie author um, like you have the if you have your tweet like like retweeted and stuff by the right person um, like it can make a difference I've seen it in my sales numbers um, it's not a great promotional plan by itself um, so it, I think Twitter is most useful for connecting with the writer community. Um, like there are there you, there are some readers and there are some opportunities uh, to get people to buy your books. But at this point, the main benefit for me of Twitter is connecting uh, with other authors. So I do like post sort of the same similar graphics. I make most of my graphics in Canva um, that I uh, post on Instagram as well there. But, 
We love Canva <laughs> so much. And and I use Bookbrush too a little bit. Um, and I have a Facebook readers group, which I really like. Uh, I don't use Facebook much otherwise, um, but I have a readers group with two other authors as well. I know I'm taking us like out of the not your Valentine talk and I promise yeah. we'll go back to it. That's but fine. Yeah. When it comes to interacting with your readers, do you find your Facebook reader group is your primary source of reader interaction or do you use all your platforms to discuss your work with your fans? I think um, like all of them to some extent, but the the Facebook reader group, I think is the most focused on interacting with fans because that's what people are there for. Right. Um they're not people who just like randomly come across your tweet. Like they're, they're members of the group. So um, that's a nice thing about that. And like I promised, bringing it back to Kobo Originals, <laughs> this is the second novel that you've done with Kobo Originals. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because you've worked uh, like you've done a bunch of indie publishing. You've worked with a traditional publishing house. What was working with the Kobo Originals team like? No pressure because you're on the Kobo podcast. You can be honest. Um, so I liked it. Um, I think uh, they the dead the the schedule is very quick compared to trade publishing. Um, so uh, like for my Berkeley books, they were basically done six months in advance. For the Unmatchmakers, even maybe not for this one, I hadn't started it six months in advance because uh, <laughs> the contract hadn't been like it was it wasn't decided till early last year, and the the uh, book came out in June. Um, so the timeline was much more. It was more similar to like my indie publishing timeline, but perhaps even more condensed than that for the first one. Um, and yeah, I love the covers I've had and uh, I've had different editors for both books, um, but I can have input on what editor I have as well. Yeah, Laura and I were talking about the covers today and how much we <laughs> love them. Yeah. What is, how does the like Kobo release schedule, like you mentioned, it was really quick. How does that compare to how you usually write and release your books uh, on the indie side of things? Um, so when I, uh, I'm a somewhat fast writer, but I switch off between projects. So I'll write like the first draft of one book and set it aside for a month or two and work on other things and then go back to that book. So I usually have a first draft and two rounds of revisions before it goes to beta readers or an editor. Um, and with the end matchmakers, there just wasn't any gaps in that process. Uh, with the Not Your Valentine, there was uh, was was probably pretty similar to um, my ske- my usual schedule for an indie book. So I usually do start the first draft six months or more in advance of when it comes out. Not always for novellas, um, but usually just so I have time uh, to let it sit in between. I started at least six months in advance. And you mentioned that you have had a couple um, books with traditional publishers recently. How has that shift been to becoming kind of a hybrid author versus just indie? Um, so it is very cool to see your book in bookstores, like just walk into Indigo. I mean, not always every Indigo, but in general, I can find my books in Indigo. Um, so that it was actually at that at that point, I think I'd sort of been like, oh, I don't care about that. But it was it was pretty cool. Um, the timelines are so different, so it can make kind of planning your release schedule a bit complicated because you're working on one hand on something that's coming out in a year and a half and on the other hand something that's coming out in four months um so <laughs> it can make it a bit difficult to space everything out um i found that i don't i think the readership is very different so uh 
for the Berkeley books, like before the ebook went on sale, uh, the vast, vast majority of sales were print. <laughs> and in my indie books, like 95% of these sales are ebooks. Um, so it's a pretty different audience. And I didn't really feel like the people who were reading Donut Fall in Love were then going and reading my backlist. I mean, definitely I anecdotally heard of a few, but I did not really see it in the numbers. Um, so that was interesting. Um, but it it was, uh, yeah, I, I like having both and I hope to continue to have um, both uh, to be a hybrid author for the, for the time being, yeah. Actually, the, what I was going to say was that the Kobo original has done more for my Kobo <laughs> sales numbers for my indie books than my Berkeley uh, books have. We'll, we'll take credit for that. We'll pass that along <laughs> yeah. to the originals team. They'll so love that. Actually, it's mainly in Kobo Plus. I can see it could dub it doubled my Kobo Plus income. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> India, India, my indie Kobo Plus income, yeah. Um, One thing that I absolutely loved about... Uh, not your Valentine, and I know this is a theme throughout a lot of your books, is how Toronto the book is. There's one point where Helen is talking about the TTC, which to our non-Toronto listeners is our public transit system. And she says that if she leaves very early, she gives herself a buffer, everything will go smoothly and she will arrive on time. But if she leaves with just enough time to get to her destination, everything will go wrong and she will undoubtedly be late, which is the universal <laughs> TTC experience. And I love that so much as somebody who loves Toronto. And I'm just so curious, do you purposefully draw attention to the setting? Like, do you love setting your books in Toronto as much as I personally enjoyed reading it? So I, yeah, I do. I mean, part of it is because I don't have to do much research or like it's a very limited kind of research I have to do. Um, so part of it is me being lazy, but like I do, um, I do like setting my books here because uh, I, I like the city and I've lived here my whole life. So um, I plan to continue to write most of my books set in Toronto. Is there a part of Toronto that you haven't explored in your books yet that you would love to use as a setting? Mm -hmm. Not that I can think of, really. At this point, I feel like I put basically everything in my books. Um. <laughs> As a Canadian romance author, are there any resources that you'd recommend to Canadian indie authors? Uh, so hmm, that's a good question because, yeah, so, some advice is very American-focused. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for some things, it doesn't matter. And for some things, it does. Um so, like, I'm a member of Toronto Romance Writers, which it's called Toronto Romance Writers, but, like, uh, I think most of the meetings are virtual right now, so you can join elsewhere. And it's not an indie-specific organization, but we do have a lot of indie authors and some talks that are uh, relevant for indie authors. Um, I can't think of another particularly Canadian-focused um, indie author resource. Yeah. Did you find it difficult when you were like first breaking into the indie scene as a Canadian amongst so much Americanized content and advice? Um, not too bad, really. Uh, like I think, um, like the, the main thing like for advice is the financial stuff. <laughs> um, so it's just that when people talk about income tax, like the stuff that they and getting like actual 
you know, income tax slips from retailers, which I don't, it's, it's just not, it's not the same. And then you get, you get, if you're most of your sales in the U.S., then the currency, the, the exchange rate with the U.S. can really affect how much you get paid. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mainly for that, you just need an accountant and um, ignore advice that's clearly American specific. Um, but overall, I didn't think it was too bad. Um, like one of the things I did worry about was using Canadian spelling, because in my experience, um, sometimes Americans think that non-American spelling is an error. So, <laughs> so all my books have American spelling, um, just because the majority of my readership is American. Um, so then some people complain that it should have Canadian spelling because it's in Canada. Uh, but at this point, I probably just going to leave it as American spelling. Also, because under my other pen name, I was just so used to American spelling from submitting to American publishers that it's sort of awkward to go back and forth for different uh, projects between different spelling. So um, that was one of the things I thought about uh, when I was uh, starting out. Also, um, like Kobo is very big in Canada. Um, so one of the reasons I never considered doing Kindle Unlimited is because I wanted uh, my books to be easily available in Canada. So I definitely wanted them to be on Kobo. That pesky OU in color just coming back to haunt you. Eh? Well, I have like two books that have, well, I guess one book in this painting that has neighbor in the title. Uh, <laughs> so like, yeah. It's so funny. I went to school for publishing and I actually have a textbook called Editing Canadian English because oh, really? Canadian English is such a weird smorgasbord of yeah. American and uh, British spelling. So it's really interesting. Yeah. I never really thought about having to make that choice as an author based on where your readership is, because usually when you're publishing in Canada, traditionally you're using Canadian spelling, but that's a really interesting consideration that I never would have thought of. And Word is, Word is Microsoft Word is just completely useless for Canadian spelling because it just accepts everything. So like, <laughs> it's not helpful at all if you're trying to be consistent, so... You need a strong editor and proofreader to make sure the yeah, geographical I mean, spelling is correct. That's the other thing is like, because when I was starting, I had an American editor. So it's like, I don't want you to have to figure out what is and isn't the right spelling. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I've been trying to figure out how to formulate this question properly for most of the day. But uh, as you mentioned in all of your books, one, if not both of your leads are Asian and in uh, Not Your Valentine, they're both Chinese Canadian. And what I thought was really interesting was drawing attention to the white gaze on the Asian experience, if that makes sense. Like uh, talking about how like white folks can fetishize the mm -hmm. like Asian community. And I was just wondering, like, I don't want to say like, why did you include this? Because obviously it's important, but I guess it's more like, what was that decision to include it like for you? If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not, like, it's not a big part of the book. I'm not 100% sure what brought it on. I think the, like, fetishization of Asian women is sort of like a long, something that's been, like, I wouldn't say, like, always widely discussed, but something that's, like, 
been talked about a little bit going back a long time. I think we're sort of seeing it the other way um, with white men, women fetishizing Asian men to some extent now with K-dramas and K- not to say that all fans do that, just that I think um, with the rise of K-pop and K-dramas, we are seeing that a little bit. And so that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to put that in the book. I think it's really interesting. And like, it's not a huge focal point of the book at all. It's mentioned in passing, I think twice, but I feel like, and I find this happens a lot when folks are writing outside of their lived experience is that they will describe a character as being a member of a marginalized community, but then not going deeper into what that experience is actually like, because it will affect a lot of how you interact with the world. So I don't know. I just wanted to draw attention to it because I thought it was really well done. Okay. Thank you. So we mentioned at the beginning um, that you've written over 20 books. How has the publishing industry changed throughout your career? And have you had to kind of evolve your marketing strategies at all to keep up with the different changes? Um, So I published my first indie book under this name in 2018. And um, like publishing, I feel like publishing is always in crisis. Um, (laughs) I don't know that like one of the big things that's completely different in that time is TikTok, but I still haven't used TikTok. I've been sort of watching videos to like learn about it, but I haven't really tried it. Um, So that's been one of the things that like didn't exist in 2018 that some people have really done well with in marketing. Um, I think we've also seen uh, sometimes cost per click ads are more expensive and not getting the same results. Um, I have never done a lot of cost per click ads either on Amazon or Facebook um, because I haven't wanted to put in the time and uh, the money to figure out how to make them work for me. Um, And also I think that newsletter you know services like free booksy or bookbub is the big one um, i've only had one big book bookbub so i can't comment on how that's changed over time but like i think some of those are just not getting quite the results that they used to uh not that they don't work at all i think they do but like it can be a little more difficult and especially if you promote the same book again like i find you don't get the same results using the same service twice um so i, I think that's got like it, it seems like there's always like something that's getting less effective over time. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, other things like the covers have changed a little bit. I think illustrated covers were just sort of getting big in romance in North America around 2018 was when the kiss quotient came out. So like around that time, I would say is when they started to get bigger. Um, so we've seen covers change a little bit in that time as well. Yeah, we've definitely heard that about uh, BookBub changing a little bit, the expectations being a little bit different. And Laura and I are both avid TikTok watchers, but not users. So if you figure it out, how to make effective TikToks, please let us know, because we've been studying very hard. I have heard too, like, that's actually another problem if you're not American, is that I've heard people recommend that you get an American SIM card so that you're, so that TikTok thinks you're in the U.S. Whoa, I never thought about that before. That's, that's so interesting. So that, um, I was like, God, I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that's too much work. At um, this point. But but that is like something that um, 
like sometimes you have to consider stuff like that when you're not in the U.S. is where who it where it's going to promote um, your posts and stuff too. So, uh, yeah. It's really interesting. There's so many things to consider when you're indie. There's so many like little decisions that kind of fall on you to make. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, going, cause I like under my old pen name started in 2014, like, like there are a whole bunch of big, small, uh, sorry, a whole bunch of uh, decent sized uh, ebook first or ebook only romance publishers at the time that are pretty much all gone now. Um so like like they they sort of i think indie just sort of took took over uh just because indie became more accessible it became it's so easy to get your stuff uh up on retailers that the advantages of that weren't as big and yeah so so there's so the whole bunch the whole like idea i had when i in like 2013 of uh where i was going to sell my work and stuff is just completely different uh than from from what it is now when you started with this pen name, did you find you had to basically start from scratch? Oh, and- yeah. I, I mean, I purposely, I, I didn't like, it's not like a big secret. So I did say like, I'm writing under this name now. And my social media handle was like X something slash something for a while. But it was basically starting over. But um, I did so, I, I sold so poorly under my first pen name that there was basically nothing to bring with me anyway. Like there, there was there was nothing there. So it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't, it wasn't that difficult to um, decide to leave that behind. So. You mentioned um, covers changing a little bit, like with the kiss quotient. Um, do you feel a lot of pressure as an indie because you kind of have this opportunity to change your covers a lot? Like when you see different things trending? Um. <laughs> So I've never to this point recovered a series. Uh, I am thinking about it for the first time. Um, and I'm not sure uh, what I'll do. Um, yeah. This was it. I was thinking of, of taking most of, most of my indie covers are uh, stock photos and, of people mostly the guy but not always so a couple of them are couple covers or sorry a couple of them are, are couples um and i was thinking of doing illustrated covers for one of my backlist series uh i'm not sure um i think tiktok and also instagram really like the illustrated cover <laughs> so that's sort of what i was uh why i was thinking about it and just sort of to get a new you know, a new opportunity to promote the books again uh, with something a little different. Um, but I just, because I don't make my own covers, um, it's another expense. And I just, uh, I have not until now really been in a position where I wanted to think about that at all. Yeah, covers are much harder to do well in Canva than yeah, yeah. social I media don't, graphics. I don't have the <laughs> skills to do my own covers. I think the indie authors who change their covers more often I think many of them do their own covers because <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, uh, and also like for stock photos, like there's only, if I wanted to do another stock photo, I don't think I would change covers to like use a different stock photo of a person. Cause there are only like a limited number of really good Asians 
stock photos. Um, and I don't want to like, I feel like I'm wasting them if I'm recovering a book almost. So I'm not sure. <laughs> and when you're choosing the model for your cover, like when you're going through the stock photos, do you have a very specific picture of what this individual looks like in your mind while you're looking? Or are you sometimes just see a random photo and you go, that's him. Um, so like later, like, I don't know. At, at, at first, um, I picked the photos after I'd written the book, but like later on, I started basically picking the photos before I wrote the book or, or like setting or like narrowing it down to a few different options before I wrote the book. Um, just, I don't know, just so I had something, I, I'm not actually a very, I'm not very good with faces. So like, just so I had something in my mind before I started writing. Uh, also with Asian characters, if you if you say you want like someone with a shaved head or long hair or, for a male character, then you start to have problems finding what you want. So <laughs> um, like, it, it, it's not the stock photo situation is not completely terrible, but like once you start having criteria like that gets a little trickier so um that does affect how i uh describe my characters physically sometimes and sometimes i just haven't found a stock photo of what i actually wanted to write so i changed it a little bit that's so interesting and you're not the first author we've spoken to who has mentioned the lack of not complete lack but somewhat lack of diversity in stock photos yeah, and um, couples can be trickier, especially interracial couples with one Asian person, um, which is part of the reason I don't have a ton of couples on my books. So, should start having photo shoots. Put yourself on your covers. <laughs> Nana Malone did I have, it first. You can. Do I know. It I heard. I remember hearing that. Yeah. No, I don't. I. I would never want to. Do that. <laughs> Now, I have one very important question for you. Um, in your bio, yeah, you mentioned that you love eating gourmet donuts. Yeah. And we're all based in Toronto. And yeah. so I'm really curious, what is your favorite donut shop in Toronto? Um, so like lately, I really like Unholy Donuts. Do you know that one? I don't. Where is it? I'm genuinely so going to write near, this down. It's near Church and Wellesley. I think it's only been open about a year. Um, but one thing that's nice is that they're open late and they have good selections later in the afternoon. <laughs> if like me, you don't go out in the morning ever. Um, so like when I go there at five, there are still like lots of different things to get. Um, but they, it, it's hard to go in and say, I want this because they always sort of rotate up, but there, there's always something interesting. Yeah. Okay. This having selection late is key because my donut shop usually closes at like 2 PM because yeah. they're sold out. So thank yeah, you I think they, for this. They don't even have like, they don't open early. Like I think they say they don't even have all their donuts out till noon. <laughs> so they're not trying to cater to a, to an early crowd. Have we just changed Rachel's life? I think <laughs> this is one of those times I kind of wish we were a video podcast so you could have seen <laughs> Rachel's facial expression. Everyone. Just um, pure donut related joy. Yeah, late afternoon donut related joy. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what's coming up next for you and what our readers can expect from you? Um, so I, uh, don't have any more books with Berkeley. I, so after Not Your Valentine, which is out, it will be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, I don't have any more books with Berkeley. I have a book with uh, Emily Bessler books that will be out in 2024. Um, and for my indie books, I'm still figuring out my schedule. I hope to start two new series this year, but uh, I'm still working on figuring out the details. Um, yeah, and I'm also looking at starting a subscription, not a Patreon, but something similar to that as well. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully having a Kickstarter too. Like there, there are so many different things you can do in indie publishing right now. That's kind of exciting, but also very overwhelming. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say definitely overwhelming. There's so many options. It's hard to know which one yeah. to go with, um, but that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Well, keep us posted and we will include links to any and all of the above projects in the show notes for this podcast. And where can our listeners find you online? Um, so uh, JackieLauBooks.com and on both Twitter and Instagram, I'm also JackieLauBooks. And on my web- website, you can find a link to sign up for my newsletter as well. Amazing. And we will include links to all of those in our show notes as well. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. As promised, we'll have links in our show notes to help you find all the resources mentioned. And we've also got a link to a Q&A with Jackie on the Kobo blog that you should check out. This episode was originally produced by Terrence Abrahams with additional production by me, Nathan Maharaj. Michael and I will be back soon with more author interviews Thank you so much for listening.